Is it madness or evilness? Can it be both? What drives a man to murder another due to the hideousness of one physical attribute? Will the guilt caused by the deed lead the murderer to confession or only sink him deeper into insanity? The book, The Telltale Heart, our author, Edgar Allan Poe. And you're listening to Lit Society. Let's get lit! Hey, this is Kari. And this is Alexis. And you're listening to Lit Society, a show about books and drama. Alexis, how familiar are you with our author this week? um, I remember him from middle school. That's Mm -hmm. when I first read his works, um, particularly this one and um, The Raven. I can't think of if I've read any other one. I'd have to start reading to know, but so mildly familiar. My knowledge of him is the same as yours. I think we're at the same level. Um, I do know that they're Amer- that he's an American author, a contemporary of Nathaniel Hawthorne, who wrote mm-hmm. uh, The Scarlet Letter. And that during that time, when those Puritans were making societies in Salem and early Boston, there was a lot of crime and violence. You know, that's the <laughs> sense that I get about that time period as well. Why, though? Why? They said they was in England like, hey, y'all, we just too holy for this. We going to go away. OK, so they got on some boats, came to the colonies and was wretched. Mm-hmm. I know so. they sent like um, murderers and, you know, prison folk over mm-hmm. there, too. So that could be why hey for sure remember when we were reading the scarlet letter and um one thing they said the puritans always did wherever they settled was to create a prison prison yeah. and a graveyard it was two mm-hmm. things that are inevitable so the theme for this week is in line with that that early puritan society and it is the true stories behind poe's telltale heart Now, different real life murders have been credited as the inspiration for Edgar Allan Poe's The Telltale Heart. But one that keeps popping up is an 1830 murder of a man named Joseph White in Salem, Massachusetts. On the evening of April 6, 1830, 82 year old Captain Joseph White was murdered and the town was shocked. Now, Joseph lived with relatives that worked for him, including um, Mary Beckford, who was his housekeeper and also his niece. Mary had a daughter also named Mary. So don't get Mm -hmm. confused. So we'll say the younger Mary. The younger Mary married (laughs) a man named Joseph J. Knapp. And the captain, Joseph White, the old uh, wealthy captain, was furious because what he liked to do is write people in and out of his will based on how he felt about you this week. Oh, so, boy. <laughs> so he's the patriarch of a family. He has all the purse strings. He has all the money. And everyone's mm-hmm. always trying to please him so that when he dies, he's 82 years old, okay, in 1830s or 1820s. So people that's like any time. day now. <laughs> yeah, that's a long time to live back then. Yeah. If I'm on your good side, you know, in the eight, early 1800s, I want to stay that way because now you're 82. You have all the family's money and I want some of the monies. It don't make sense to make you angry <laughs> <laughs> at this late date. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, um, that man that 
the younger Mary married Joseph J. Knapp was also the grand nephew of Captain White. So we got some cousins marrying some cousins. Okay. Okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So Captain White mm-hmm, told Mrs. Beckford, the older Beckford that worked as his housekeeper, I didn't change my will. And that was a surprise because the younger Mary was a favorite of the family. Um, And this beloved elderly family member, no one liked him. He was not beloved, was being a tyrant (laughs) again. And so um, the younger Mary's husband was like, I'm putting a stop to this. Also, it should be noted that the captain talked bad about Joseph Knapp. The, the husband of the younger Mary. So not only was he mad at Mary and changed his will, he was like, your husband's a lazy, cowardly fortune hunter. End quote. And, and, that is okay. actually a quote. Dang. And, so, and that's his, also his great grandnephew. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So the anger Joseph Knapp, who had expected, like maybe he was a fortune hunter because he expected to get rich off of his wife and family at the death of his great uncle. He was he like- married up. Yeah, he was like, well, then what is life worth? What is marriage Mm -hmm. worth? Why am I doing any of this? I know what I'll do. In conjunction with his um, brother, John Francis Knapp, they hired a local criminal named Richard Crownshield, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. a man known for violence. Okay, this man, which is run up behind a flight attendant on an airplane and punch him for no reason. So <laughs> not, not a flight attendant, <laughs> you know, I'm trying to put in pop culture, you know, this is yeah, the yeah. topical topical. Uh, okay, so anyway, okay. um, he was known for violence in Salem. So the Knapp brothers hired him to murder the Captain White. The murder was Dang. planned for the night of April 6th. And the idea was Joseph J. Knapp would first sneak into the living quarters, maybe peeking his head in every day, just looking. And then he closed the door. Come back the next day, just looking. <laughs> right from the book. Right from the and book. He closed the door. And then one day he snuck in, stole the revised will before it could be official, left the window open, and allowed the murderer to sneak in. That murderer yeah. then, um, what do you call it? Bud- bludgeoned? Yeah. Uh-huh. The 82-year-old captain. And stabbed him like 13 times. Really gruesome stuff. This was like the perfect murder at the time. You know, they didn't have security cameras. <laughs> there was no way. People went to bed early. So anything you did at night was pretty much unknown forever. However, the bad people did stuff at night. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. However, the mystery of the murder remained unsolved until a series of events led to a scheme to blackmail the father of the Knapp brothers concerning the murder. So someone Dang. wrote them a letter and was like, I know what you did last summer. And they was like, <gasps> as they clutched all their pearls and diamonds from the old uh-huh. man money. Yeah. Ooh. So it seemed that the Knapp brothers plot to kill Captain White and their exchange of money to the hitman to commit the act had been known by a petty criminal who testified for the prosecution. So Not perhaps a petty the hitman, criminal. <laughs> yeah. So perhaps the hitman was at a saloon or bar or whatever they mm-hmm. did back then, um, drinking squirrel, uh, sa- eating squirrel <laughs> sandwiches and drinking beer. And I was like, y'all just got all this money for killing the oh captain. Oh, just kidding. And a petty criminal who was sleeping the floor was like, oh, okay, let me log that away for when I'm broke so I can blackmail everyone involved. And he did. Exactly. 
Um, I'm mm. not sure he got any money, though, because it was brought to trial. And the special prosecutor in the case was a man named Daniel Webster. Now, if you were a great performer, you could go into the theater. But wouldn't it be a lot more financially responsible to become a lawyer? Because didn't nobody have nothing to do. So they were at the court for entertainment. And if you were mm. a great speaker, you would likely win your case. And that was Daniel Webster. He was an orator. So um, people love to hear him talk. Mm -hmm. And um, he published his argument on the trial as a pamphlet. Like, isn't this what you call <laughs> like influencing the jury? I don't know. Uh, I'm not really sure how trials worked back then, but he was like, this is why he did it. And this is all the evidence. And he writes in that pamphlet that the secret which the murderer possesses soon comes to possess him. It overcomes him. He felt it beating at his heart, rising to his throat and demanding disclosure. He thinks the whole world sees it in his face, reads it in mm. his eyes and almost hears its workings in the very silence of his thoughts. It has become his master, end quote. Mm. It's very well put. Again, this is Daniel Webster, the prosecutor. This may have influenced what would become the telltale heart by Edgar Allan Poe. So that's one case. The second case we'll consider um, as a likely source for inspiration is the 1840 trial of James Wood for the murder of his own daughter. Wood pled that he was not guilty. Why? Not because he didn't do it, but because he's crazy. I'm crazy, y'all. <laughs> oh, bye. Okay. But this had to be seriously considered. So the question was put to the juror, what the jury, whether or not Wood was insane. The reporter covering the case um, for Alexander's Weekly Messenger states that, and that was a publication, states that although Wood's calm demeanor might lead some to believe him a premeditated and cool-blooded assassin, Rather than a madman, he believes this calmness is merely the cunning of the maniac, a cunning which baffles Ooh. that of the wisest man of sound mind. Ooh. The amazing self-possession with which at times he assumed the demeanor and preserves the appearance of perfect sanity. End quote. That's from the publication. The jury in the case ruled in Wood's favor, saying, yeah, after reading this, I think he is crazy. And the messenger oh. reporter who wrote that bit I just read was none other than Edgar Allan Poe. Oh, wow. Yeah. OK. Wow. So, you know, crime was criming even back then, unfortunately. And perhaps these crimes, these real life stories inspired our short story today. Wow. All right. I love it. Mm -hmm. Well, you want to take a break and get into today's story? Yeah, let's do that. All right. Sounds good. <laughs> All right. And we're back. Alexis, what can you tell us about American author Edgar Allan Poe and his inspiration for the Telltale Heart? Okay, so Edgar, the great Edgar Allan Poe was born January 19, 1809. According to Britannica.com, he was an American short story writer, a poet, critic, and editor who was famous for his cultivation of mystery and the macabre. His tale, The Murders in the Rue Morgue, initiated the modern detective story. 
his tales of horror are unrivaled in American fiction. Mm -hmm. The Raven, which was published in 1845, is among the best known poems in national literature. Mm -hmm. Okay, so he was born in Massachusetts, Boston. His parents were actors. His father left the family um, when he was young and his mom died when he was two. Mm. He was taken in by a man named John Allen and his wife. And it's presumed that John Allen was probably his godparent. And while John did not adopt him, he did give him the name Allen. And thus he became Edgar Allen Poe. The Allens sent him to be educated in Scotland and England and After his bit there, he would return to the Allens in 1820. By 1825, he had inherited great wealth, about Mm. um, $750,000 at the time, and he bought a home. Wait, how did he get this money? At 16? Man, I'm a failure. He was 16. So how did he get this money? It was a family member, um, a distant uncle, I believe, that died. Oh, he inherited and, it. Mm-hmm. He inherited okay. from him. So um, by 1826, it was time to go off to college. So he went to the University of Virginia. And before leaving for school, he had a little girlfriend. OK. And so while he was away at school, he like gambled away his money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like in 11 months of school, he gambled away his money. He had a bad relationship with Alan sometime um, during this 11 months. Their relationship turned sour and he refused to pay Poe's debts. Mm-hmm. So so he gave him up, gave up school and um, he didn't return to Alan because of his relationship with him. It was a little sour at the time. And his sweetheart that he had before he left had married somebody else. So he went to Boston and worked for a newspaper writing under a pseudonym. Mm -hmm. He didn't make a lot of money. Well, actually, I think he got fired for drinking on the drinking or something. He had developed a a drinking habit by this point. He was troubled. Okay. He joined the military. Uh, He told him it was 22 instead of 18. Uh, He would later tell them his actual age and his situation and get discharged before he would finish his five-year uh, assignment. Why did he join the military? And what war was it for? Making money. Money oh. making. Oh, okay, okay. To get dollars and whatnot. Do you know what conflict was going on at the time? Uh, no, I don't. The American Revolution. At 26? <sighs> no, nah, I don't know. I'm just saying stuff. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Insanity. Okay. All right. So he would reconcile with Alan. Um, Alan had lost his wife or um, Poe's foster mom. And the way it was is that um, he would get discharged from the army only if Alan wrote a letter saying like, OK, I got this boy. I'm going to take care of him. I'll make He's sure he under won't my become care. a menace to mm-hmm. society. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then he left the military and went to West Point. You familiar with West Point? Yeah, that major um, military school. Mm -hmm. He got kicked out of there. Um, 
he at this point has been disowned by Alan. He's done with him. But during his time in the military and at West, West Point, he continued to write and publish short stories. He's actually considered the first person to make a living by writing alone. In 1836, he married his 13-year-old cousin, who would later die, um, I want to say 11 years later. So what? How old was the cousin? 13. I'm tired. Her death would lead Poe to um, his drinking habits becoming worse. Was was her name Eleanor? No, Virginia. Oh, okay, go ahead. I I think he did have a girlfriend named Eleanor. Mm-hmm. I think some so. situations, you know, some situationships after her <laughs> death, quite a few of them. But he Hope was with a adults. loving husband. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, with adults. Okay, so Poe would die two years after she died, his wife died, under mysterious circumstances. Like, crazy. After Poe's death, This man named Griswold, who was an anthologist, editor, poet, and critic, he hated Poe. And he started this campaign to destroy Poe's reputation. Um, But much of what he was published, people would later learn was lies. And he he wrote this obituary piece for Poe after his death that just really kind of shocked people because it was he said all negative things about him and mm. then he posted it anonymously. <laughs> they later found out it was him though. Cause he was, they you know, right he was away. <laughs> out to get him. I mean, mm-hmm. he's dead and he's still like, I'm just going to destroy him mm. anyway. So the book that we're covering today was first published in January of 1843 uh, in a literary journal called the pioneer. It was its inaugural issue. The Telltale Heart is considered a classic of Gothic fiction genre um, and is one of Poe's best known short stories. They say he was likely paid only $10 for this story. And it's also his shortest story. And that's what I have about Edgar Allan Poe. Well, thank you. Very edifying. I learned some things I wanted to know and some I am disappointed <laughs> to find out. Um, right. On that note, can you please give us a spoiler free synopsis of this very, 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 very short story, The mm-hmm. Telltale Heart? OK, eager to convince us of his sanity, a narrator recounts the tale of an old man's murder. Kari, who do you think would enjoy this book? Yeah, if you're into reading a complete idea in 10 minutes or less, this is the book for you. If you hate reading, Edgar Allan Poe is likely your favorite author. (laughs) If you want to get to the meat and you never eat the sides, this is the story for you. Okay, Mm -hmm. it is short, concise and complete. Mm -hmm. Alexis, what were your first thoughts of The Telltale Heart? So um, I remember reading this book in um, middle school, and I really enjoyed this story. Um, Even then, I especially enjoyed when stories were short. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But this is the extent of reading horror for me. This is about as far as I go, this little story right here. So when I saw this collection at that library and 
Porto, the world's mm. most beautiful library. It was one of the books you could choose to get to get in the store quickly. I was like, I want to read that book. I haven't read that in ages. It would be good to get back to it. So I picked it up and was ready to devour those few short pages that I love so much. And you're talking about the Libraria Leo, right? Yes. So yes. that's a bookstore to so y'all know. And yeah, Porto, Por- Portugal. That's the one with the red stairs where it'd be 500 people when really capacity is five. Yeah. So yeah, it's always yeah. musty, not just because yeah. of the books. <laughs> Bookshop. Yes, it's a bookstore. I'm sorry. I said library because everything no, is a it. library to me. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, thank you for that. And are you ready to begin our deep dive into the Telltale Heart by Edgar Allan Poe? Take it away, I am Alexa. indeed. Okay. The story begins with the expression, true. (laughs) The narrator tells us that they have been and are nervous. The narrator is nervous, anxious, and then asks the question, why would you say I am mad? The narrator then tells us the disease of his nervousness, his anxiety sharpened his senses. Then the narrator tells us to pay attention while he, they recount the entire story. The narrator is trying to prove to us that they are not mad. And, at and this they're doing point, a terrible job at it right away. <laughs> at this point, we don't know if the narrator is a man or a woman, who the narrator is at all, really. We don't know who they're talking to. So I just assume it's me, right? So... The narrator gets this idea and he's not sure where from because he said he loved the old man. We don't know who this old man is, but Mm -mm. he loved him. It's a great place to start, by the way. So as a creative writer, they always tell you no one wants to start your story before what's happening happens. Mm. So this story puts you right into the like juiciest part. It's not giving you backstory. You don't need it. You can fill it in if you'd like. Um, And he will give you some as the story goes on. But right away, he's putting you in the center of the action. And you're like, oh, you love the old man. But it don't sound like you do. But do you? But what? Mm -hmm. But what old man? And what relation is he to you? Yeah. Yeah. So none of those details are provided. He said this old man never gave him a reason to be malicious or to expect malicious behavior from the narrator. He just... There was no reason for him to not like him. None. However, the narrator said the old man had this eye, the (laughs) eye of a vulture. It was pale blue with a film over it. And whenever the eye would look upon him, the narrator's blood would run cold. So it was decided that the old man should die. And that way, the narrator would be free. Of this eye. And not to speak passively, the narrator decided it should happen. The narrator was like, yo, I ugly. Oh, you got to die. Yes, exactly. Not not quickly. That's how the connection came about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So at this point, the narrator says, you fancy me mad? Mad men know nothing. You should have seen me. 
So the narrator, who I now start referring to as a male, uh, tells us how clever he was in his plan to snuff out the life of the old man. He said he used such caution and foresight. He said that he was the kindest to the old man the week before he took his life. (laughs) He kind of stalked him at night while he was sleeping. Since the old man was sleeping, he wasn't disturbed by him. He couldn't see his eye. The eye was closed. The seven days he stalked the old man, the next morning he would get up and behave as if nothing happened, treating him so well. However, on the eighth night, he snuck into the old man's room, but this time he startled the man so that the old man (laughs) sat up and asked, who's there? Who's there? And then they both just froze for a whole hour. (laughs) Froze for a whole hour. It was pure darkness in the room. So he remained still. And now the old man is up and nervous about the darkness and the presence that he feels in the room. The narrator has this lantern in his hand and it makes So it sounds to me like he's at the door. The door is cracked a little bit, but it's still pitch black. That's exactly right. And what's that lantern shining on? (laughs) It's shining on the man's eye. He he lets a sliver of light through and it shines right on the man's eye, the old man's eye. And so now the man is like really in fear. I would be too. I would be too. (laughs) But now he can the narrator can hear the heart beating of the old man. And our narrator says that he is hypersensitive to sound. Mm -hmm. So out of fear, the old man tries to calm himself, trying to tell him what the things are. But as Kari mentioned, they both frozen. The narrator can hear this heartbeat and it is so intense. The narrator lets out a yell. The old man screeches, screams out, and the narrator drags him to the floor, pulls a heavy bed over him. So although the narrator could still hear the muffled heartbeat, he wasn't bothered because he knew the sound would not be heard through the wall. The narrator checked for the heartbeat, and finally, the old man and that troublesome eye were dead. Upon the eighth night, I was more than usually cautious in opening the door. A watch's minute hand moves more quickly than did mine. Never before that night had I felt the extent of my own powers, of my sagacity. I could scarcely contain my feelings of triumph to think that there I was, opening the door little by little, and he not even to dream of my secret deeds or thoughts. I fairly chuckled at the idea, and perhaps he heard me, for he moved on the bed suddenly, as if startled. Now you may think that I drew back, but no. His room was as black as pitch with the thick darkness, for the shutters were close fastened through fear of robbers, and so I knew that he could not see the opening of the door, and I kept pushing it on steadily, steadily. I had my head in and was about to open the lantern when the thumb slipped upon the ten fastening and the old man sprang up in the bed crying out, Who's there? I kept quiet still and said nothing. For a whole hour, I did not move a muscle, and in the meantime, I did not hear him lie down. He was still sitting up in the bed listening, 
just as I have done night after night, hearkening to the death watches in the wall. Presently I heard a slight groan, and I knew it was the groan of mortal terror. It was not a groan of pain or of grief, oh no. It was the low, stifled sound that arises from the bottom of the soul when overcharged with awe. I knew the sound well. Many a night, just at midnight, when all the world slept, it has welled up from my own bosom, deepening with its dreadful echo. The terrors that distracted me, I say I knew it well, I knew what the old man felt and pitied him, although I chuckled at heart. I knew that he had been lying awake ever since the first slight noise, when he had turned in the bed. His fears had been ever since growing upon him. He had been trying to fancy them causeless, but could not. He had been saying to himself, It is nothing but the wind in the chimney. It is only a mouse crossing the floor, or it is merely a cricket which has made a single chirp. Yes, he had been trying to comfort himself with these suppositions. But he had found all in vain, all in vain, because death, in approaching him, had stalked with his black shadow before him and enveloped the victim. And it was the mournful influence of the unperceived shadow that caused him to feel, although he neither saw nor heard, to feel the presence of my head within the room. When I had waited a long time, very patiently, without hearing him lie down, I resolved to open a little. A very, very little crevice in the lantern. So I opened it. You cannot imagine how stealthily, stealthily, until at length a simple dim ray, like the thread of the spider, shot from out the crevice and fell full upon the vulture eye. It was open. Wide. Wide open and I grew furious as I gazed upon it. I saw it with perfect distinctness, all a dull blue, with a hideous veil over it that chilled the very marrow in my bones, but I could see nothing else of the old man's face or person. For I had directed the ray as if by instinct precisely upon the spot. And have I not told you what you mistake for madness is but over-acuteness of the sense? Now, I say, there came to my ears a low, dull, quick sound, such as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I knew that sound well, too. It was the beating of the old man's heart. It increased my fury, as the beating of a drum stimulates the soldier into courage. But even yet, I refrained and kept still. I scarcely breathed. I held the lantern motionless. I tried how subtly I could maintain the ray upon the eye. Meantime, the hellish tattoo of the heart increased. It grew quicker, quicker, and louder, and louder every instant. The old man's terror must have been extreme. It grew loud, I say, louder every moment. Do you mark me well? I have told you that I am nervous. So I am. And now, at the dead hour of the night, amid the dreadful silence of the old house, so strange a noise as this excited me to uncontrollable terror. Yet, for some minutes longer, I refrained and stood still. 
But the beating grew louder, louder. I thought the heart must burst. And now a new anxiety seized me. The sound would be heard by a neighbor. The old man's hour had come. With a loud yell, I threw open the lantern and leaped into the room. He shrieked once, once only. In an instant, I dragged him to the floor and pulled the heavy bed over him. I then smiled gaily to find the deed so far done. But for many minutes, the heart beat on with a muffled sound. This, however, did not vex me. It would not be heard through the wall. At length, it ceased. The old man was dead. I removed the bed and examined the corpse. Yes, he was stone, stone dead. I placed my hand upon the heart and held it there many minutes. There was no pulsation. His eye would trouble me no more. The narrator, with much caution, quickly took care of the body by taking it apart and depositing it under three floor planks. The narrator tells us there was no blood spot and nothing to wash out because the tub caught everything. Four hours later, the narrator had completed his nasty deed, and there was a knock at the door. The narrator was feeling much accomplished and lighthearted, so he opened the door to three men who identified themselves as the police. Neighbors had reported a shriek, and foul play was suspected, and they needed to search the premises. The narrator felt he had nothing to fear. The narrator welcomed the police in and told them it was him who let out the shriek because of the dream he had. He told the police the old man has gone out to the country and he gave the police a tour of the home. He told them to search the house. Feel free. The search satisfied the officers. In his confidence, he even took the police into the old man's room brought chairs in so they could all sit. The narrator (laughs) sat his chair over the location of the old man's body and they all four chatted casually. As they sat longer, the narrator wanted the police officers gone. His head started to hurt. He felt he turned pale and he had ringing in his ears and then a nervous chatter as the ringing continued but it seemed far away. Then he realized the ringing noise he heard was not within his ears. It was a low, dull, quick sound like the sound of a watch in cotton. And the officers could not hear this sound, but the narrator believed that they could hear it. The narrator becomes anxious and starts behaving irrationally. He believes- (laughs) Speaking louder and- Higher and <laughs> standing like, you, up. You, you want some? You want some sugar with your tea? And they like mm. standing up, you know, walking around, stick around a little bit, yeah. picking up chairs. Yeah, <laughs> he was carrying on. He believes the police knows of his crime, and they're mocking him. Unable mm-hmm. to take the perceived pressure from the police and the muffled sound of the beating heart, the narrator screams out, Villains! I admit the deed! Tear off the planks! Here, here! It is the beating of his hideous heart. So, the come end. on, I feel sorry for the officers because they like, can we get some um, Mexican wedding cookies with our tea? <laughs> and he like, ah! 
I rip up the floor and it's a dismembered body. And I'm like, oh, man, I don't even want them cookies no more. Mm -hmm. I hate this job. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. Well, should we take take a break? break? (laughs) Yes, we should. Let's do it. Welcome back. So, Kari, mm-hmm. what is your final verdict and would you recommend this book? Yeah, I mean, it's brilliant. It's written in a very poetic fashion uh, where the word choices are such that they form almost a melody together. Um, very well done. Not as much as The Raven, which is outright, uh, you know, it rhymes in a lot of places. Mm-hmm. This is more um, poetic in its darkness. Very romantic, as was of the time. And by romance, it doesn't mean there's love involved. It means that instead of focusing on reality, it's focusing on emotion and perception and um, just the baseness of humanity, in um, the author's opinion. Um, And so that was very interesting when he describes the eye um, and how insane it is for him to be so fixated on the eye as evidence of him not being insane. Um, Mm -hmm. That's great. Uh, That's a great uh, lot of turn of phrases there that are really good. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it honestly takes two seconds to read. Um, And for that, I would recommend it and enjoy it. And I would read it again. What about you? So look, Edgar Allan Poe's writing is truly an art form, okay? Mm -hmm. I really feel that way. The way he tells such a concise story, there's just no room for extra words because he's told you everything that needs to be told. And I love that. I love it. So I would definitely recommend it. I would read it again. It's scary to me. (laughs) It's a scary Mm -hmm. story. Um, But I love it. I do. I like his works. Mm -hmm. Yeah, same here. So what are we reading next week, Alexis? It's a wild card episode. We will cover Fences by August Wilson. Yeah, you guys, we're, um, I'm hoping mine will arrive today. It is a little difficult to find this uh, play. Um, but of course, a lot of people are familiar with the play and also the movie starring Denzel Washington and Viola Davis. Um, so that is what we'll get into next week. You guys, thank you for listening to Lit Society. We'll see you next Thursday. Lit Society is brought to you by Alexis Anaria and Kari Herrera. I think this is our shortest episode ever. Uh, (laughs) Support the cause by leaving a five-star review for us on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify. If you're leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, you can also leave a comment about why you absolutely love us. We love y'all too. If you've enjoyed what you've just heard, tell a friend about Lit Society. Visit LitSocietyPod.com for show notes, this month's book list, and to sign up for our amazing email newsletter. And until next time, you guys, read read something. Something. Something.